a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm glad you could join me today. We have a lot of great stuff to cover in this hour. I do want to mention my sponsors, including Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College, and Rio del Sion Home Lots. Can I just tell you about them for just one second? These are beautiful half-acre Zion View lots, surrounded by the Virgin River right at the mouth of Zion Canyon, 37 minutes from St. George. If you've ever been in this part of the country, there, there aren't even words to begin to describe how beautiful it is. But uh, if you are interested in knowing more, go to my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. And uh, there's a link. Take it right to Jeff Staples. Jeff is the guy you're going to talk to. He can give you all the information about uh, how many lots remain, how much they are, and so forth. I know a ton of people are moving to Utah right now from, from various other states where, you know, for whatever reason, they're, they're bailing. There are a lot of different reasons. I, I'm not going to question them. But if, if you're looking for a particularly beautiful corner of the world in which to land, this is one you may want to consider. And if you've never been to Zion National Park, well, let's just say it's probably worth whatever effort it takes to, to get there and see it at least once. All right. That said, welcome to the show. What is this program all about? I, I, I'm, I apologize if I'm covering past territory for those of you who are longtime listeners, but there are new people who are finding this show or finding this podcast, and I, I only feel like it's, it's fair to give you at least a, an inkling of where I'm coming from. First and foremost, I don't have all the answers. I probably have an opinion on most things, but there are also a lot of things where I just don't know, and I'm not afraid to say I don't know about that. Um, and there's also a lot of stuff out there. There's a word I learned once. I don't use this in common speech, but it's called ephemera. Paul Rosenberg, one of my favorite writers, uses this word to talk about this great ephemera machine. And ephemera defined as, as really just small, inconsequential things. And when we find ourselves being hyper-focused on things that are really of little consequence, it, well, it robs us of time, it robs us of our effort, but it can also rob us of understanding. And I mean really understanding what the world is around us. And so Paul was one of the people who warned, you know, if, if, you, look at, uh, if you look at popular culture, if you look at mass media, uh, basically any of the things that have you sitting in front of a screen either clicking or scrolling and look I do it too so I'm not I'm not condemning anybody but what seems to occupy a great deal of our time is simply what could be called ephemera small inconsequential things that that in the the long run really don't amount to much now this doesn't mean well I have to be on every moment of every day if I'm awake I'm striving you know to carry out some mission of something I'm not saying you have to be that committed but I've noticed something in the lives of people who, who I see as, as making a difference. And this is in many different arenas, not just politically. Sometimes it's in their artwork or it's in their music or it's in you know, their advancement in research or science or just, just being a good example to whoever happens to be around them. 
And I think we need more people like this. In fact, I think especially at this time where a lot of people are kind of running on emotion, which can be volatile, to put it mildly. We need people who can think clearly, who can sort truth from fiction. But that takes effort. And when you can just passively sit in front of a screen and just kind of soak it in, you know, it's, it's understandable why so many people take the, the easy way. So if you're here, I'm just going to make an assumption. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm going to assume the easy way isn't necessarily the way you're going to take. You're, you're willing to put in some effort to understand these things. And so that's why I, I try not to dwell on what I consider uh, ephemeral things like this personality and this pol- pol- political personality or this celebrity. You know, this is not the daily tattler. I don't want to get bogged down in the latest conspiracy. And did you know, you know, with some some wild eyed claim about this, some of this stuff out there is true. There's a lot of it that isn't. I'm trying to drill down and focus on things that, that I hope will be useful skills that you can put to use immediately in your own life for your best and higher purposes. And in this case, how to sort truth from error. I know there are people like, well, I just need to know somebody who can, can do that kind of stuff. Nope. That's living on borrowed light. You need to know this for yourself and you need to trust yourself. So in interest of this, there are a couple of places we're going in today's show, and I'm really excited to share these with you. Uh, one of them is an article by Carolyn Brashears. I found this on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. And there, there's a lot of stuff, you know, that's going on right now that's out of our control. I believe one of the things that we can and should be doing at this moment is everything in our power to teach the young people in our lives correct principles. Now, look, there's a good chance if they're if they're going to a public school, they're probably getting some counter. In fact, it's guaranteed they're getting they're getting some counter indoctrination as to what the world means. And so they may be very tapped into things like, you know, climate change and what whatever the political fad of the day is, it's going to show up in the schools. It's going to be in their textbooks. It's going to be in their curriculum. It's going to be, you know, just part of that zeitgeist, that uh, that spirit of the times. But if you have young people in your life, it is worth your time to teach them how to better prepare to be truth seekers and teach them the value of thinking for themselves. This is this to me is it's one of the most admirable things I think a person can do. And, and if I seem, you know, to be really, you know, endeared to the idea of we need to be teaching our kids how to be clear and independent thinkers, it's because there were people who crossed my path in life at times where I could very easily have just jumped on a bandwagon and gone with where the crowd was going. But I had mentors who, um, again, I, I see wise purpose in this. I see, you know, when someone's path intersects with my own, I always in the back of my mind, I'm kind of asking the question, what purpose might God have in, in having our paths cross? And I know this will sound weird to some, but I'm going to go ahead and put it out there anyway. I'm amazed at the number of times where there is, is something going on in my life. There's a, there's a threshold that I'm not quite able to cross and at exactly the right time and right place. Someone's life path coincides with my own. They have the key. They have the answer. They have the necessary encouragement to get me to that next place. And by the way, it's not uh, it's not all about being a taker either. This means I have the responsibility and I, I take this seriously. I try to do the same with others, too. 
And you could say it's your imagination, Brian. You're just looking for some great divine noble purpose. But I'm, I'm telling you, I've seen the pattern enough that I don't think it's just random chance. I'm not just tossing dice. So if I suggest maybe we ought to be helping the people around us, you know, especially the young people, think for themselves. I think you're going to love this essay from Carolyn Brashears. We're going to be sharing here in just a few minutes. Because she starts with the premise that one of the first things our kids have to know is that they don't have to automatically believe in experts or believe what experts are telling them. And the funny thing is, even as I say this in my mind, I can almost picture some people, you know, looking at the speaker going, really? Doesn't that sound like a recipe for anarchy? Isn't this how, how chaos takes hold? Everybody rejects the experts and doesn't do what the experts say? No. Not at all. Carolyn Brashears makes a really strong case that teaching the kids not to automatically believe experts is a great way to put them on a path to to becoming knowledgeable and influential themselves. And something that they need to understand at the get-go is even those people in our society who are experts, and I mean real experts, who have that knowledge, who have that influence... They are people, too, meaning they have biases, they have blind spots, and sometimes, you know, you have to know when you're putting somebody so far up on a pedestal that it becomes unrealistic. I think, again, I'm I'm hearkening back to Paul Rosenberg just because I think he explains this so well. Anything you put above reality itself or above truth has become an idol to you. And we do this with people. Right. I mean, you know, well, if so and so said it, then I absolutely believe it. And they may be very reliable and they may be absolutely right. But it may not be wise to build a guru or someone who is so far above reproach. That you start to recognize them as as something greater than human or incapable of making a mistake. Time has a way of showing us that we're all human. And, and it brings everybody down to earth at some point. Sometimes, you know, we, we learn things about the people we once revered that kind of leave us disappointed. Oh, to me, it's actually reassuring because it just re- reassures me, hey, they were human just like me. Maybe there's hope that I'll, I'll make something of myself, you know, at some point. All right, stick around. We'll share Carolyn's column right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I don't know if you have kids or grandkids that uh, maybe come home from school, talk about uh, what they're learning. Maybe, uh, you know, drop a dime on their teacher if their teacher's trying to sneak something past them, something, you know, subversive. I, I, I admire those whose kids are capable of doing this. And I admire the kids who are already thinking at an independent level or at least trying to think clearly and independently at a young age. I know there are those who say, Brian, their parents have just brainwashed them a certain way. But, uh, you know, if it's like the exchange I saw earlier today on Twitter where someone was saying, you know, uh, You know, people who homeschool their kids are just trying to protect their conservative point of view and make sure they don't encounter any other points of view. And yet, if I were to ask you, what is the most um, inflexible point of view out there 
I would have to say it's the politically correct uh, point of view, that progressive politically correct point of view, which, by the way, has absolute reign in your schools. So if you're sending your kid to school thinking, yeah, you know, they're going to learn all about different uh, points of view and different ideas. No, they're not. They're going to learn what the most politically correct, most vocal members of our society want them to learn. I'm sorry if that sounds too harsh. I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus here, but I'm telling you, those kids have got to be able to learn to think for themselves. And that's hard to do when you're in a place where every adult is an authority figure, where you are expected to toe the line and you have peer pressure. If, if you get out, of, if you question something, if you step you know, away from the crowd and say, I don't necessarily agree with that. It's like everyone is expected to bring you back into line. That's hard. That is really tough to stand. That's tough to stand up to as an adult. <clears throat> Truth be told, most adults, adults won't even do that. They'll look the other way. They'll pretend they'll change the channel. Something else is on something, something more interesting for kids. It's super hard. So here's what Carolyn Brashears has to say about why telling students to trust the experts is poor advice. She says among our country's many ailments is the spread of fake news. As Beth McMurdy argues in a recent article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, disinformation and propaganda are flourishing with people increasingly in politically polarized media ecosystems. Now, Carolyn says, fortunately, there are doctors in the house. Specifically, universities are full of professors with doctorates in education, history and communication who seek to cure students of disinformation. Unfortunately, a number of these experts also spread the disease, like medieval doctors who failed to sanitize their own hands. For one instance, for instance, one professor that McMurty interviewed, uh, Jennifer Mir, Mir, let me try this name again, Mircica, observes that many students following politics lean toward conservative outlets. And that trend, she tells McMurty, presents a particular set of challenges given the right wing media's war on truth, including an attack on academics as liars and misleading and corrupt. Now, rather than disprove this perception of academic bias, McMurdy's article only confirms it by leaning heavily on conservative examples of prejudice. For instance, uh, Pref Professor Mercieca proudly insists that she never calls anyone a liar. Such labels, she says, don't reveal anything about why someone like Alex Jones, a far-right radio host who promotes conspiracy theories, is as powerful and successful as he is. Instead, she helps students do their own analysis of Donald Trump's rhetoric to see how he claims to win even when his projects, such as building the wall between the U.S. and Mexico, fail to meet with much success. And so the article goes with McMurdy offering examples of how to deal thoughtfully with the misinformed conservatives. Now, Carolyn Brashear says, look, there is certainly bias on the right, just as there is bias on the left and everywhere in between. The reason is not so much politics as human nature, our predilection to believe we know best. As Benjamin Franklin observed at the Philadelphia Convention, most men, indeed, as well as most sects in religion, think themselves in possession of all truth and that whenever others differ from them, it's so far, it, it is so far error. In this case, the Chronicle showcases that tendency by downplaying examples of partiality on the left. See, there's no mention, for instance, of the factual inaccuracies of the 1619 Project promoted by the New York Times, despite substantial documentation by historians and economists. There's no reference to Paul Krugman's column initially titled, How Many Americans Will Ayn Rand Kill? Even though the New York Times editors seem to have realized they'd gone too far when changing the title to When Libertarianism Goes Bad. 
There are no allusions to NPR giving Vicki Osterweil a platform to promote her book in defense of looting. Her interviewer did not even challenge Osterweil's claims that looting enables people to demonstrate that without police and without state oppression, we can have things for free. Or that we have to be willing to do things that scare us, and that we wouldn't do in normal, peaceful times because we need to get free. Can we now all agree that such comments are problematic regardless of the speaker's political persuasion? Instead, the Chronicle implies that students must be warned against conservatives and advised to trust real experts. Especially dangerous, according to one professor McMurdy interviewed, is the idea that the traditional gatekeepers of information, journalists, scientists, and academics included, have been sidestepped by self-styled experts who think they can read raw data and determine the truth about mask wearing and voter fraud. Is this really the solution, asks Carolyn Brashears? Drop the portcullis to exclude the supposed barbarians? She's talking about these intellectual gatekeepers, and she says the problem in that approach, or the problems, there's more than one, were signaled decades ago by the Austrian economist F.A. Hayek. In The Intellectuals in Socialism, Hayek emphasizes the bias as well as the power of intellectuals, a class into which he places journalists, teachers, radio commentators, scientists, and doctors, the very gatekeepers stressed in McMurdy's article. Hayek warns, quote, it is the intellectuals in this sense who decide what views and opinions are to reach us, which facts are important enough to be told to us, and in what form and from what angle they are to be presented. Whether we shall ever learn the results of the expert and the original thinker depends mainly on their decision, end quote. Now, Hayek emphasizes that such intellectuals have good intentions, but err in judging particular issues in relation to new ideals that fit their vision of an advanced society. The practical difficulties of achieving that society are of less interest than the broad visions, the specious comprehension of the social order as a whole, which a planned system promises. Hayek's point is especially prescient, given current debates on how to respond to COVID-19. Who are the intellectuals? And how much power do they urge us to cede to state governments in relation to where we can travel and how businesses can function? One source that McMurdy interviewed, Michael Caulfield, stresses that since students cannot process all the data on COVID-19, it's better to rely on experts. You have to find someone who knows what they're talking about and then think about whether what they're saying is in the mainstream. Now, Caulfield is right on the source uh, is that the right that the source of information matters. But the danger of his emphasis on the mainstream is that it could lead students away from other perspectives that might be true or partially true. As John Stuart Mill observes in On Liberty, quote, even if the received opinion is be, be not only true, but the whole truth, unless it is suffered to be and actually is vigorously and earnestly contested, it will, by most of those who receive it, be held in, its, in the manner of a prejudice, with little comprehension or feeling of its rational grounds. You get what he's saying there? It's not enough just to know something. To know why you know something is much more powerful. Carolyn Brashear says these prejudices not only heighten the polarization that McMurdy, be, McMurdy bemoans, but they teach us, or they lead us rather, to ignore how experts mislead us, as in the CDC's changing message about wearing masks. And they direct us away from other scientific perspectives on the pandemic, such as the Great Barrington Declaration. She says, if we want to heal our country, we have to start by healing ourselves. 
we have to acknowledge the prevalence of bias across the political spectrum and other prejudices we are in danger of spreading. Otherwise, we're making our students less aware and our country more divided. And that's something that no vaccine can cure. I'll have a link to this in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianheidshow.com. Again, this is from Carolyn Brashears, published on fee.org. When we come back, we're going to take another step into the realm of thinking more clearly. I've got another great essay from Paul Rosenberg on a fallacy that you're going to recognize is being used a lot these days. Stay with us, please. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back to the show. Of course, you will find this in the show notes, the link to this essay that I'm about to share with you from Paul Rosenberg. I have really enjoyed his series on logical fallacies uh, just because it's, it's so interesting. And look, I know not everybody is out there contending on the Internet. In fact, I really hope you're not. I hope you're not wasting any of your time arguing with strangers online. But I also understand there are times when you may have the opportunity to speak up and say something, to stand for something. And I'm not saying you have to go out and look for it. Sometimes it'll just present itself. And if fate taps you on the shoulder and you're the person who has something to offer that could be useful, you're going to want to know if someone is contesting this. If you end up, you know, arguing this back and forth, you're going to want to know when you're being subjected to some kind of a fallacy to either, you know, stop you in your tracks or intimidate you into into not saying what you're saying or challenging that other person's point of view. And of course, you don't want to use it yourself. Because then that means that, you know, it's. It means you could very possibly be missing a key part of what needs to be seen there. You don't want to mislead people, right? No, neither do I. So this is the argument from fallacy. This is fallacy number 13. Or I'm sorry, the argument from authority. There we go. That makes more sense. Now, fallacy number four, many weeks ago, was the appeal to authority. The claim that to basically if it's authorized, then it's right. What the president does is right. We've heard that before. And we noticed a similar fallacy, says Paul Rosenberg, in number eight, the naturalist fallacy, a claim that time creates authority and truth. Well, if this is what we believe, then then it must be true. You know, the word Earth has always been flat. We've always been at war with East Asia, whatever, whatever the case may be. So for today's fallacy, Paul Rosenberg says, I want to turn these around, not third parties referring to authority, but authority itself telling us what's right. And so he says, I'm calling this fallacy the argument from authority. And the things we'll be covering here, says he says, will involve well-known fallacies like the argument from repetition, repeating something until everyone just accepts it. The courtier's reply, claiming the other person's argument is wrong because he or she lacks credentials. And the argument from incredulity. Your argument is absurd. All of these work because they come from authority. So he says, I think it's better to examine them in that way. In reality, the argument from authority is irrational and silly, being a claim that truth follows the person rather than the facts. I mean, it's, it's the rhetorical equivalent of, don't you know who I am? Very off-putting, no matter who's doing it. 
Nonetheless, we see it all the time, says Paul Rosenberg. For example, in the political realm, we see charges in the political realm rather, we see charges relentlessly made by authorities against an opponent. Russia hacked Hillary's email. And soon enough, everyone thinks it's true. After that, facts to the contrary become not just irrelevant and troublesome, but they're actually held to be hateful. We see it in academia, where failure to hold an advanced degree makes one's opinions moot. We see it in other settings, where a louder, wealthier person derides the man or woman with a new opinion as a conspiracy theorist. And he says, in all of these cases, authority shoves their opinion on others, many of whom will simply adopt it. The appeal from authority then is powerful and especially powerful in the modern world, where it reaches millions of people in mere minutes. So he says, this is something we need to examine. Here's how the trick works. There's no version of this trick larger and more overt than what's called the big lie. And there was probably no greater practitioner of this dark art in the 20th century than Adolf Hitler. This is what he wrote about it in Mein Kampf. He said, in the simplicity of their minds, people more readily fall victims to the big lie than the small lie. Since they, tell themsel- since they themselves often tell small lies in little matters, but would be ashamed to resort to large-scale falsehoods. It would never come into their heads to fabricate such colossal untruths, and they would not believe that others could have such impudence. Even though the facts which prove this to be so may be brought clearly to their minds, they will still doubt and continue to think that there may be some other explanation. Now, Paul Rosenberg says what Hitler says there is mainly true, but he's only describing the hidden part of the process. People finding a reason to believe and that underlying reason, which he simply assumes is it's because of their bias toward authority. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, as we've noted before, humans have a serious weakness for authority and tend to conform to it. So if we're to be honest, we have to admit this is a primitive trait. and one that we need to outgrow. He says the advantage held by authority, of course, is the application of shame and or violence. When people know that the speaker could reach out and hurt them, they pull backward. They find reasons to comply. Now, he says, I'll expand a little on that to make sure it's very clear. And he says, bear in mind, I'm being brutally honest here. I think this weakness of ours has to be faced directly. So the process of acquiescing to authority usually runs something like this. The authority makes sure everyone knows that they are the authority, whether it be a crown, special clothing, banners and backgrounds, proclaiming the speaker's position or whatever. This is a fundamental component. Humans are superb at recognizing status, which is perhaps the core of our weakness. One way or another, authority must show us that it is authority. Secondly, we recognize ourselves to be of lower status than than the speaker, whether it's, well, he's on TV and you're not. She runs the CIA or the police obey him or whatever. We are wired to understand such things and we do understand them. The connections may be made in the back of our minds, but they are very definitely made. And unless we train ourselves to discount them, which he says takes dedication. Number three, the authority tells us in knowing, if not threatening tones, what the truth is, and probably that evil people oppose it. (laughs) Number four, authority provides us with a reason to believe and obey. And this is crucial because human beings are self-reflective beings. That is, we observe and judge ourselves. One thing most of us cannot allow is to judge ourselves as cowards, as less than the heroes of our own story. 
So even the appearance of a hero-coward choice troubles people, and so some passable excuse is required. These can range far and wide. Humans are tremendously creative in this area. But but whether it's without the law, life would be unlivable, or democracy has spoken, or something else, some reason to protect oneself must be provided. People, as a rule, will not simply admit that they're obeying out of fear. And so the appeal from authority is in reality a veiled edict and threat. In the case of the classroom or cocktail party bully calling conspiracy theory, it's an active attack. The weapons of such people are ridicule and shame, which are not to be underestimated. So what do you keep in mind? Well, firstly, Paul Rosenberg says we should be very clear in our minds that authority is the enemy of truth and growth. Every sufficiently experienced person comes to understand this. As Albert Einstein wrote, unthinking respect for authority is the greatest enemy of truth. Or as Buddha said, do not believe in anything merely on the authority of your teachers and elders. Paul Rosenberg says if we're firm enough on the concept that authority is more wrong than right and has absolutely no advantage when it comes to recognizing truth, we've made a strong start. But to that, he says, I'd like to add a second thing, openly admitting, advertising that we're complying only because of credible threats. Now, he says, as noted before, people make excuses for obeying so they can remain heroic in the stories they tell themselves and others. But he says, I suggest we cut through that by being bluntly honest, and in a conversation it would look something like this. Your friend asks you, so what do you think about the new XYZ law? You, I think it's barbaric, but I'll have to follow it in public, because if I don't, I may be arrested by armed men and locked in a cage. To which your friend responds, um, that's a rather extreme thing to say. And you can respond, no, it's an honest thing to say, although it is unusual. I do what they demand because the alternative is for armed men to attack me and lock me in a cage. That's the true reason we obey, and I think we should start saying so. I know you're thinking, I don't know if I could do that. That that would be a bit blunt. Well, you know, follow your heart. Don't, uh, Don't spring it on some person who couldn't handle it. But for some people, that may be what they need to hear is something very plainly stated. And what Paul Rosenberg explains here is what we're doing in cases like these is cutting through a mass conspiracy of compliance and face-saving. Doing this may confuse our friends at first, but after that, it actually gives them a new way to stand as the heroes of their stories. They have the courage to deal with the truth. And as an added benefit, he says it also condemns those who deserve to be condemned. So, yeah, you're hearing a lot of argument from authority these days, depending on which media sources you consume or, you know, who you're listening to. I'll have a link to this in the show notes, which you can find at the com. This is from Paul Rosenberg, Fallacy 13, The Argument from Authority. When we come back, we are going to talk about how, um, you know, for every, every time that uh, government substitutes its force... In place of the voluntary choices that a free market provides, there are unintended consequences. And you're going to hear about this a lot in conjunction with, uh, for instance, the, uh, the minimum wage, among other things. How about the hero pay mandate in Long Beach, California? Brad Palumbo from the Foundation for Economic Education has written an excellent piece on that. We'll share that with you just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I got to admit, one of the things that has been extremely frustrating for me as I have watched the whole COVID uh, response play out over the last 10 months or so has been the incredible damage done to small business. I mean, we look, we have been on kind of shaky ground economically before, and, and I think there's a lot to be said for the uh, out-of-control federal spending. I think there's a lot to be said on a debt-based economy. I don't think we have sound money. There, there are a lot of factors that play into this. But artificially shutting down huge swaths of the economy. In other words, telling people, I'm sorry, but you're not essential. You can't go to work has been very, very destructive. And it's been it's been like a controlled demolition. It hasn't been, oh, man, the market went into free fall and everybody crashed. It's it's been little by little. You know, with each little lockdown order, each new mandate, uh, all the the fines being levied. What did I see? The Utah Department of Health. I don't think they were bragging, but they were certainly publicizing. Hey, you know, we've handed out about $50,000 in fines about not wearing masks by employees. By the way, most of those, I think they said the vast majority of those uh, uh, fines that were issued or those violations were reported like in the last 40 days. Crazy stuff. And, and, I, and I don't see anyone at the uh, official level, okay? So municipal leadership, state leadership, county leadership. Nobody wants to take credit for all the damage done by the decision to shut down these businesses. By the way, it didn't stop the spread of COVID. Like a virus, it continued to move through the population. And despite, you know, the different uh, changing criteria, yes, hydroxychloroquine is fine. No, it's not. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Well, you know, it's, there's a lot of politicking that's going on around this. And sometimes, just once in a while, a government uh, entity will step up and say, well, we just want to help people. And this is when government said it's most dangerous, because that help always comes with unintended consequences. Brad Palumbo, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, has written about how local Kroger stores in Palm Beach, no, Long Beach, California, are closing as California's Hero Pay Ordinance backfires. So a new hero pay mandate in Long Beach, California, he reports, has inadvertently cost some frontline grocery workers their jobs. Ralph's and Food for Less, both owned by the same parrot company, Kroger, announced on Monday they'll be closing 25% of their stores in Long Beach after the city council passed an ordinance requiring companies with over 300 employees nationwide to pay employees an extra extra $4 per hour. So you see what they're doing? Hey, take care of these heroes. You pay them. And in response, two stores in the area will be shut down. This is according to local news outlet Fox 11. A company spokesperson directly cited the city council's ordinance mandating higher wages as the reason that they're closing down. The spokesperson said the irreparable harm that will come to employees and local citizens as a direct result of the city of Long Beach's attempt to pick winners and losers is deeply unfortunate. The spokesperson said, we're truly saddened that our associates and customers will ultimately be the real victims of the city council's actions. So the ordinance was passed with the stated intention of rewarding hardworking grocery store employees who've kept a vital service running throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Long Beach Mayor Robert Garcia was a key proponent of the measure and signed it into law. He argues it's justified because grocery store workers have been on the front lines of this pandemic and deserve this support. He says similarly, Brad reports, Garcia and other supporters of the mandated wage hike argue that companies are just being selfish by closing down rather than paying their workers more. They point to the fact that Kroger has seen high levels of profit this year. In truth, says Brad Palumbo, whether the company is being selfish and whether it's really flush with cash, Kroger says these specific stores were already financially struggling. And that's this is all beside the point. This mandatory wage hike honoring heroes was passed by politicians eager to spend somebody else's money and then claim the credit. That's like me holding a gun on you and telling this, telling you, hand him 20 bucks. And when you do, I look at the other guy and say, are you going to thank me or what? You just got 20 bucks. You're welcome. (laughs) A little presumptuous, right? Now, think about this. Like any minimum wage job, this job was always going to have the unintended consequence of eliminating some jobs altogether. Did you know minimum wage in Long Beach is already 14 bucks an hour? That's for employers who have 26 or more employees. A $4 increase would be an $18 an hour wage. That's a nearly 30% raise for every employee. You don't have to be in the grocery business to understand. That's an enormous spike in a grocery store's labor costs, which are already one of the biggest expenses an enterprise usually faces. Whether do-good politicians feel workers deserve it or not, the reality is some grocery store employees don't provide labor that's worth $18 an hour. And some stores can't afford to pay such an artificially high price. The basic laws of supply and demand tell us what comes next. The government's supposed benevolence will leave a significant number of workers unemployed. And this specific instance of wage mandates backfiring is just one example of a much broader trend. On the national level, the fight for $15 movement, demanding a $15 federal minimum wage, ostensibly seeks to help workers. But in reality, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, projects that this this policy would eliminate 1.3 to 3.7 million jobs. A wealth of economic research similarly shows that minimum wage hikes cause unemployment. So the moral of the story is clear, says Brad Palumbo. Sweeping government price controls and labor market interventions will always have unintended consequences. And it doesn't matter how noble the stated intentions are or how sympathetic the intended beneficiary may be. Indeed, unintended consequences are an inherent feature of big government programs. He's got a great quote here from economist uh, Anthony Davies, Anthony Davies, rather, and political scientist James Harrigan, who say every human action has both intended and unintended consequences. They go on to say human beings react to every rule, regulation and order governments impose. And their reactions result in outcomes that could be quite different than the outcomes lawmakers intended. The more complex the underlying situation and the more sweeping the rule or regulation, the more pronounced the unintended consequence will be. So Long Beach lawmakers may truly have hoped to help frontline workers by mandating higher hero pay under the law. But their naive good intentions will mean little to the grocery store clerks left unemployed as a result. Is that any way to treat heroes? 
Ooh, that was a, that one stung. Again, this is Brad Palumbo's essay from the Foundation for Economic Education. I'll have a link to it in the show notes today. And and look, the only reason I share this with you isn't to, I'm not trying to stir up your anger at government, but just trying to point out even when the best of intentions are are at hand, using government, which will always use coercion at some level to get what it needs accomplished, do this or else, as opposed to voluntary persuasion, you're going to have unintended consequences. And I like how Brad put it, you know, it's, it's so easy for politicians to spend other people's money. You there, give him a raise. I mean, that's on the one hand, hey, thanks for the raise. On the other hand, you know, the fact that it has to be done with coercion, the fact that, uh, that you get to bear the costs, the people who ordered that act to take place, yeah, I don't ever think they ever really feel the pain or the consequences of what it costs now to do business. I understand that this sounds counterintuitive to, to many, and, and I don't claim to any particular expertise in economics. But I do believe that the free market provides the best possible solution to this. Namely, when it comes to wage, wage is a matter of something that needs to be hammered out between the employee and the employer. And if for some reason that agreement isn't satisfactory to either one of those parties, they should be free to absolutely turn around and walk away from it. If they accept it, then they accept it voluntarily with the understanding that, you know, an opportunity to improve their position or to improve themselves, you know, will be taken, you know, down the road. But having government, you know, just mandate with words on paper and with the force of the law, we're going to make you pay these people what they're worth. It's not that we don't see the worth in the people. I'm sure the business owners thinking it's the worth of the, the what kind of value is the job that they're doing? What kind of worth is that creating? And if the answer is it's fairly low, it's something pretty much anybody could do. It doesn't require a lot of skill. Well, don't be surprised if it's, you know, if it doesn't pay a super high wage. Maybe it's a great place to get your toe in the door, work your way up and move on. I think that's how it's supposed to work. This is The Brian Hyde Show.